Hello, and welcome to the One Stop Co-op Shop Podcast, your one stop for co-op news and reviews. This week, Jason Perez is here to entertain you with some more shelf stories. Yo, my peoples, what's up? Welcome to Shelf Stories, the channel that tells tales from games, books, and life. I am your host, Jason. Thank you so, so much for stopping by for this latest history chat episode where I break down the historical background of a game that I have been playing. The game that um, I'm going to be presenting today is Freedom, the Underground Railroad, and we'll tell you all about why I picked this game, why it's important in just a second. But I would like to introduce a gentleman who is going to assist me, and by assist, I mean teach me a lot. <laughs> he is a doctor, a scholar of African-American history. He's at Bowdoin College. He's also a gamer. He runs the Ludica blog over on BGG, and he is very available. He has a very active Facebook. You'll learn a lot just by uh, perusing the social medias of Mr. Dr. Patrick Rail. Welcome to the show, Patrick. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. All right. So before we get into Freedom the Underground Railroad, I just wanted to give you a more proper introduction. If you are a longtime listener of Every Night is Game Night, the podcast that preceded Shelf Stories, You've been on the, you've been a guest on the show before and we have talked about this very game. <laughs> That's right, but so much has happened in the last few years. It's a great time to talk about it again. We talked about it in 2017 and now we're here at 2021 in February, Black History Month. So one of the tie-ins that I uh, wanted to look at in terms of looking at freedom again, it is the gift that keeps on giving uh, in many ways. So, um, but before we get into freedom, uh, please introduce yourself to the audience. Maybe they've never seen your face before. Maybe they've read your blog, but they haven't seen your face. Uh, introduce us and uh, talk, us, talk to us about how you marry your academic interest with your gaming interest. Yeah, thanks. So I've been at Bowdoin for about 25 years now. I got my PhD in African-American history at University of California, Berkeley back in the 90s. And one of the things that I'm really interested in doing is trying to figure out if we can think about historically themed board games as a representation of history, not dissimilar from maybe Hollywood feature films. So uh, it, it, so much history is taught in this country through popular culture. It has always seemed important to me to help students sort of sift through that and think critically about what we're seeing. Mm -hmm. That's particularly important these days when there's so much going on in African-American lives uh, and there are such deep historical roots and those roots are being invoked in popular culture all the time. So okay. it's important, I think, that we be able to critique the way that happens. Mm -hmm. You can go ahead and check out his blog, Ludica on BGG. He has broken down Freedom the Underground Railroad. He's broken down Secret Hitler. Um, had took a, a stab at some um, Mr. Phil Eklund and his games. We're not going to touch on that controversy now, but there is a very interesting uh, breakdowns of all of all historical background of all these things. If you go ahead and check out the blog. Thank you. Uh, so maybe we'll have you back on to talk about some of that other stuff at some point. <laughs> all right. But today we are here to talk about Freedom, the Underground Railroad. Uh, so I did a full Dice Tower review. It launched on February 1st, the first of the month, Black History Month. And so I'm going to refer you to that. So go ahead and press pause and go ahead and check out that, re that review to check out all the gameplay, uh, the overview and the, you know, the, my issues and my, the things that I like about as a game. We are here to talk about the historical background and the issues surrounding Freedom the Underground Rail, which was released in 2012. And it's interesting that we're looking at this game again because it's been 2012 and no other game has come out like it. <laughs> true, it's true. Well, I, I, I would imagine that somebody would have picked up on that theme. I think Brian Mayer, the designer of that game, laid down a marker that has yet to be picked up. Maybe we can kind of like theorize, but I, I, getting into people's heads, I don't know if it's that it's a case where they just don't want to, or it's like you know, hot potato. Uh, you know, uh, the the original publishers got into a little bit of controversy. We'll get into some of those right right now. Um, you know, and maybe publishers don't want to enter into that space. Please, publishers, enter into that space. <laughs> Not just like, you know, the Underground Railroad situation, but just any game that, that centers oppressed peoples mm -hmm. and their struggle for whatever it is, liberation or economic justice or something. You know, we need more games from that particular perspective. I think Dr. Rail and I are on the same page in terms of wanting more of that in our board games. It's true. We tend to get uh, uh, games that 
where slavery is historically represented in some way, but usually it's something um, you're, you can practice or not practice. So if you look at games that are, uh, you know, about exploration and expansion, struggle of empires, endeavor, archipelago, there, well, not our archipelago doesn't have slavery, um, but the others do. Um, there's a couple others in that, in that vein. And usually slavery is presented as something that you can practice. It is right. a gameable option, but you're doing it from that perspective. Freedom was so interesting because it didn't challenge players to undertake that moral you know, question of whether I want to play slavery or not. It was all about asking players to help destroy slavery. Mm -hmm. uh, more, please. <laughs> so. well, it's, just, it's, it's fascinating the way it does it. And one of the things that I'm always trying to focus on um, with, with my students as we think about games as a form of historical representation, sure. it's not just what the game says it's about, right? So we know that, that freedom is a game that's about the Underground Railroad because there's this beautiful picture on the front and it, it, it tells you, and the rule book tells you all these, all these things that are not the actual game itself tell you about uh, uh, what that game is supposed to be about. There we go. There it is. <laughs> this game can't be about anything else. <laughs> exactly, exactly. We know what this game, at least what, what, it, what it says it's about. Then you get into actually playing the game and thinking about how, like, what is unique to the form of game here that conveys that message? And so like, how do the mechanics convey the message, right? right. That's sort of Brenda Romero's riff on Marshall McLuhan's famous, you know, famous line. So the, the, mecha it, the mechanism is the message. Yeah, the mechanic is the message, right? In the same way that the medium was the message. In freedom, the mechanics marry with the theme very well, in my opinion. So you get, it's a cooperative game. You're working together, right? There's not, and you know, there's a, a powerful implicit statement there that is that speaks to the necessity of working together collectively for social action to make things happen. So to me, that's just like, we right off the bat, you get this really beautiful marriage of, uh, of what the game is trying to represent, working together in a social movement with the actual gameplay elements themselves. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, before we get into the actual gameplay elements, as Dr. Ray was talking about, let's get into some of the meta issues that people have discussed about this game. Uh, and there are some significant ones. And we'll start with, to me, kind of the easiest one to address, but it definitely needs to be said. This game was made in 2012 um, by Mary as a white person. And the publisher, the Academy Games is a white publisher. So I think right off of Jump Street, if you're looking at the BGG page, you're looking at the names associated with this release, you're seeing white people. Okay, this is a game about slavery. It's a game about that depicts suffering. You know, it, it's, it, it's, it has, it depicts in a certain way, but at the same time, slavery is, it was a suffering reality. And now we have a, a bunch of white people that are profiting off of this game. So how would you address just that particular criticism off of Jump Street? Yeah, I, it's a, a viable one, I imagine, though I don't know enough about the, the designers of the game and the publishers um, to be able to speak to it, you know, very cogently. But Academy Games generally produces what, what they present as educational games. And this game is very much presented in that vein. Um, it was designed by, uh, I believe, Mayor is a uh, library professional. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, it comes with a, well, it doesn't come with, but you can buy uh, with it a, uh, basically a teaching unit. It's all about how to use the game in, in class. So there's very clearly a, a, the intent or effort is to educate, which seems like pretty fair game to me. It sure. does not look like somebody was trying to kind of get rich off this game by exploiting somebody else's trauma, but that's always a uh, you know, a, a possibility. And it's one that we've seen trivialized in other parts of the hobby. Scramble for Africa, for example. <laughs> right. <laughs> if you don't know what Scramble for Africa is, you might, you won't even be able to Google it. It's been, it's been thoroughly <laughs> erased from the record, probably deservedly so. Yeah, but I mean, it raises important questions about the designer's intent in producing a game like this. When Martin Wallace uh, design Struggle of Empires, which is a game that in includes slavery. Um, I don't think that was his first idea. He wasn't thinking about 
you know, I'm going to first start with slavery. I think for him, slavery, and in that game, it's almost sort of incidental, right? These are, in games like this, slavery, you don't have to play it. You don't have to be confronted by it, but it is an option there. In freedom, the perspective is entirely different. Their motivation for writing the game is, is entirely different. It was purposefully to speak to those other games that challenge players to actually engage in this morally reprehensible activity. And it relieves them of that and lets them uh, encounter this history without having that kind of burden, that weight. Right. Uh, to me, it feels like you can go one of two directions with that criticism. You can say no one. You know, no one should pro no one should make a game like this. No one should profit off of a depiction like this. Or you can say we need more diverse voices making diverse games. So give a you know an African American designer, uh, a Latino designer, if we're going to talk about you know the Mexican invasions, you know, just just from the American experience to uh, talk about you know a Chinese designer if they want to talk about Asians coming over and and you know basically constructing America's railroads. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think you know do we want less or more? And I think, you know, and obviously that may be an unfair characterization of it because who doesn't want more? Uh, I think that I want to definitely honor people who they sense too, too much trauma in the experience. Like I know a lot of people who won't play freedom and I'm perfectly mm -hmm. like, yes, please do. If this is bringing stuff up for you, please, you know, avoid that. And the community is, sh it should be upon us to help people, you know, not engage in that stuff. You know, don't you like pop the, oh, you're, you're an African-American. You'll want to play this. That's not, that's definitely not the way to go. Right. But do we do we need to shut it down entirely? Is there no justification whatsoever? And I think what you're speaking to is the educational value of it and the the the, the realizing of a, that, you know, people are different. They learn differently. We learn by engaging in popular medium. They're not they're not going to stop. You know, Marlo is not going to make <laughs> not going to stop printing all these different games. So we they. As, an, as accommodation, you know, I think that where we're at is like, okay, we want more from, from more diverse. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it, you hear so much of the discourse around games because it gets wrapped up into this stuff. Well, um, well, this is the only way to depict it. And that's, that's complete nonsense, right? I mean, it's like in, in a similar way, like the reality, take Westerns, when, when African-Americans started uh, uh, being in Western themed movies, like Will Smith or something, you know, there was literal criticism, like, oh, there weren't that many African-Americans in the West. And it's like, that's not even true. Yeah, so, first, whole, <laughs> you know, the whole, right. the, the set of like ideas that we come to these games with absolutely has to be exploded. And you know why that is partly because this is a hobby that for so long was kind of the domain and, and, the, and production mechanisms were so long the domain of, of, of white people who just weren't particularly, you know, weren't explicitly interested in that experience. So in the same way that diverse voices have changed professional history, professional literature, all fields of scholarship have been transformed by the ad addition of diverse voices, that's got to happen with games as well. Right. And there are efforts, thankfully, now. I mean, I think about uh, the Zenobia Award. Are yep. you familiar with that? That uh, Volko Runka and some others are putting out, you know, really trying to prime the pump and to get some uh, uh, designers of color working so that the industry can, can recognize folks. Mm -hmm. Very, very similar way. Uh, progressive voices in, um, in, in history are uh, calling for diverse scholars to be footnoted and cited, you know, that we're not, we're, we're going to make an effort here to ensure that uh, everybody is included. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so then it kind of raises another question. And this came up, uh, I've done a couple threads about this, and there was a very good response that one of the points in the response was that, because I think, you're coming at it from the your professor, so of course education is primary, right? Um, and I think if I want to, if I'm stating the thread correctly, it's that okay. I see. I get the idea that you want to teach history through games, but the thing is, it's a game, and there's something reductive about engaging in a game. There's something that you know we're trivializing, and like a board game will never be able to truly honor what the en encompass the reality of what it is just by the medium itself it is reducing it is simplifying it, it might even be you know whitewashing or whatever you want to word like you it doesn't translate so whatever lessons are learned off of the game are going to be just the wrong lessons 
that like, you know, you'll never learn, you know, the, how bad something is. You'll never learn how, because it's a game and games are supposed to be fun. So how would you respond to the idea that games kind of, you can't learn good history off of a game? Right, right. Uh, that's a beautiful question. We used to think the same thing about Hollywood feature films, right? So you show glory, the high school teacher would show glory in June at the end of the semester, whatever's get, get it done. But the, the historical analysis of um, uh, Hollywood feature films that are historically themed is very deep and very rich. It has become so. I, I promise the same thing is gonna happen with board games if we continue in this vein. It's already happened with video games where you know new media studies, um, scholars uh, every year produce dozens, if not hundreds of essays on the representation of history in Assassin's Creed and yeah. other, other kinds of games like that. Mm -hmm. So um, the, the, the kind of analytical apparatus is being built right now that will help us contend with board games and the particular way that they do their work. What you said of, or you know, the, the kind of potential criticism, which is that they're trivial and reductive, well, the triviality is a is a uh, is, is a matter of perspective and game, right? You can if you're if you're betting the mortgage at, at Vegas, you're playing a game that is not trivial at all. Um, or if you are dealing, you know, there are CIA war, you know, there are war games used by the government. I mean, so it's possible games are not inherently trivial, even though they are inherently playful. Um, so That's interesting uh, distinction. You said that games are not games are playful but not trivial. It's a very interesting distinction. Yeah, yeah, I, I, and because I think I think play is serious, which gets us into a more philosophical kind of kind of conversation. Absolutely, yeah. But, but the other piece of what you're saying is that like that somehow the medium itself could not capture the past and its complexity, and one possible counter to that <clears throat> is to suggest that no medium can do that. That if we're talking about historical feature films or historical fiction, we're going to have similar challenges of, of reductivism and selection. Even scholarly monographs and the uh, big history books that sell a lot are still engaging in processes that um, game designers have to think about to some degree. Mm -hmm. What parts of the story are important? What is the perspective I'm going to take? What is the evidence or the stuff of history that I'm gonna bring in? How am I gonna reference the past in specific ways? Uh, am I going to do that responsibly? What is the point I want to make when I do all that? Mm -hmm. Those are common in whatever kind of historical work you're doing, I would contend. I'm looking down because I'm taking notes, people. So if you're not taking, if you're not breathing in the knowledge, I told you, I told you I was going to be learning from this man. <laughs> it's so fun. It, it, and it's so exciting to be around board games when this stuff is happening. Sure. Um, and and I, I think that you're right, that it, we're way, way behind in having uh, diverse designers working on this stuff and having publishers understand that. But I think that that is, that is rapidly changing. And I think that we're seeing um, possibilities for thinking about some of these difficult histories um, that are where all, all the designers are kind of teaching each other and riffing on each other. And as those voices grow, it's going to be more and more interesting. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, I, I mean, basically, Games are not just games. I think we almost need another word, you know, because I feel like the the if we're calling something a game, we're already kind of baking in presuppositions by what we name it. And I'm a psychotherapist. Change your mind, you can change the world. Like you, literally, the way you code things with your words lead you down certain places. And I think calling them games is allowing us to refer to these pieces of art, these pieces of culture, these things that exist downstream of culture. We think of them as trivial. We think of it as, as non-serious. And yes, much of gaming is a trivial pursuit. <laughs> These are clearly uh, games that, you know, and it's very easy to just, you know, do violence. You know, and I have my, um, my criticism of colonial games and I've articulated them, but a game like Freedom is, feels like it's doing something so radically different that I don't want to, I don't want to associate these two things. Yeah, And if I people, think, I just want to finish the thought and I'll get to that. I, I think that there are a lot of people, because I want to honor people's perspective. I think that they don't want to separate. Like it's all a no-go. And I want to definitely honor that. I just wanted to articulate my perspective. I think I'm on the same page as Dr. Rail. I don't want to lower games down. I want to lift them up. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think, and people encounter these issues in such a broad range of ways. Everyone is highly individual and, and, and personal. And I think that we have to respect that. I think a one size fits all is, is simply not, it's, it, it's impossible anyway. So, you know, why even, even, right. even try for that? Um, but I think that games, games, when they work right, let us explore options in a the thing about the triviality of games is that we get to play we get to do things imaginarily that we might not otherwise be able to do right. and that doesn't mean we should do anything that we can imagine that doesn't mean that any imaginative play all that there are no boundaries at all but it means that we can explore things in ways that are might feel to some of us a little bit safer than others so it is hard to encounter the stories of from the underground railroad it is not easy to read through that material to read right. through 12 years of slave for example it's brutal to, to play the game may be for some a way of encountering that material that draws them in, that gives them the invitation to work with what they might not otherwise work with. And that is really important. Any critical engagement with the past in my mind is a good thing. Done well. <laughs> Done well. There are yeah. rules about this stuff. And I think that we can, we can discuss those rules. We can, uh, but I just, in terms of honoring people's perspective and drawing kind of the fault lines of the discussion, I think is pretty viable work in and of itself. Um, so one last issue, and this is a little bit wonky. So I apologize to the audience for getting into a wonky issue, but it comes up sometimes. The terminology, slave versus enslaved person. Yeah. So the rule book says slave. And I think that we're used to that from the way we've spoken. And there is like in a lot of areas, you know, a reevaluation, okay, how can we you know, be more careful with our words? And I think that some folks are going to want to say, okay, let's say enslaved person instead. Uh, I'm not sure what the academic, because I'm not in academics, you, here you are. I don't know what the current kind of thinking is about that particular turn of nomenclature. Yeah, that I mean, I, I, I think the notion behind um, speaking of enslaved people is to acknowledge that personhood, right, that 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 sort of social death to use Orlando Patterson's famous phrase that goes with slavery or trying to 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 negate that to push back against that. These are people with agency. These are people. Um, they're not just objects who, who were acted upon. Now, that kind of scholarship has been done for a long time since the civil rights movement, the 60s and 70s. But I think this, um, the, the suggested change in the way that uh, we, reference, <clears throat> we reference enslaved people is about speaking to that, is about uh, continually making sure that we are not abstracting people out of existence in some way. Mm -hmm. But does that mean that the old term should be chunted away? Does that mean that we should like turn no like, like you know, because I think that's where it goes, where it's like, you know, don't use that term anymore. Use this term. I, I don't know how you feel about that particular you know, thrust of it. Yeah, I, I think that there I have I have witnessed an awful lot, uh, a, a very wide range of opinion on this. People come at this from from different angles. Um, I, I, I tend to think that. Um, Hypervigilance on these things isn't particularly effective, you know, beyond a certain point that, um, um, and there is a, so, I mean, it, it, in my use, when I'm writing, uh, I reference, I refer to enslaved people. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'll use slave as an adjective, um, but there's a little bit of flexibility there. So I, 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 I just, tend to find that if we set rules, I often find myself breaking them inadvertently. So I would rather keep the um, notion in mind rather than have it be a 100% uh, dictator. Okay. But you know, every instructor is different, every family's different, every person's different. Mm -hmm. And so I get, I think um, I can only, I can only see that the people that are like watching going, well, what's, what's he going to say about it? <laughs> Again, I, I don't have any answers. Here. I just want to frame debate and I'd love to continue the conversation in, in a way. Like I really want to, I know I'm a broken record with this stuff, but like I, it's, I really am serious. Like if I, if the best that I can do is frame a debate and represent both sides well, then you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm happy to do that and, and carry the conversation forward from there. Well, these are usually very value-driven kinds of conversations anyway. So it's the having of the conversation, I think, that is so vital very right. often. All right. Uh, so let's get to the game itself. 
uh, Freedom the Underground Railroad uh, published in 2012. <laughs> Once again, why are we going? <laughs> Give us more. <laughs> no, but I'm happy to go back there because it does have a lot to say. Um, and so one of the things that I've been developing is if you are going to depict slaves in your game, so like a like rule of thumb for designers, and I thought through this with uh, Sen Funlim and uh, a couple of the people in a video chat, and I've been having a lot of conversations, and I've come to like you know this is kind of a three pointed star, right? If you're gonna have slavery in your game, you need three things: you need the slaves themselves accurately and rep and like as much you know respectfully presented as possible. You need their resistance and struggle for liberation or, or something, whatever they're achieving. And then you need the oppressive, the, the, the repressive stuff. That is, you can't get slavery without these three things, right? And I think games try to get away with the one thing, or maybe, <laughs> you know, the second thing, but like they, don't, like they don't include the whole picture, which is basically true of all of history. You never get slavery without aspirations for, for a liberation. You'll never get slavery without brutal repression. It was never a fait accompli. So- I want to talk about freedom in those three areas because it has all three things, right? So let's talk about the first thing. Let's talk about how the slaves themselves are depicted. They are wooden cubes, unpainted. They come on, they, they either on cards, then they move on to the little plantation spaces. Then, then those are the things that you are moving on the board. Um, that was a specific choice by the designer to make them wooden cubes. Uh, and I know you've spoken with the designer, right? Have you, can I interact with him? Uh, did you talk about this particular issue? We did, yeah. I did a, 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 a an interview by email, which I then published on the blog. Um, yeah, and I I I think the notion um, I, I can't summon it, so uh, I'm not quoting from it. But I, I I understand the notion to be we wanted to not sort of stray under the realm of misrepresenting, right? We wanted to make sure that we didn't do what Puerto Rico did and just have a bunch of little brown cubes that are unspecified. Um, and I, and I, I'm, I don't know what exactly I think about that. It's very interesting. One of the things that some players have done with, uh, with freedom, um, I think I've seen this more on pages from European, they happen to be European gamers. I don't know how, happen, how often it happens in the, in the States, but people will make custom pieces for their games for freedom. And they'll have like little 3D printed chain links or actual enslaved people. And, you know, that can start moving into realms that are, would make a lot of people uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable to see there's a kind of um, uh, almost a safety in the abstract quality um, right. that right. helps keep this critical sense of distance. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's exactly it in terms of like um, A.G. Porfirio talked about this with when he did Hostage Negotiator. And in that game, he has you rescuing hostages and the hostages are like these genderless, featureless, uh, yellow meeples, right? And he's like, oh, you know, and people are asking, he's like, okay, you should make them real people. And Asia's like, no way, yeah. some of these people die. <laughs> so we do not want people to have that strong, a, a, an emotional negative experience that the more that we can do to like bring us in the space, but like abstract it out so there's emotional distance, th there's safety in there, the better. And I think um, freedom does goes that extra step of like, these are just wooden cubes. And, you know, because there's this, the slave market phase, phase four is the most difficult, most thematic of the game because the slaves come in. And then if you can't fit them, they go onto the slaves lost track, which slaves lost is a euphemism. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so I think making that more real would have been very difficult for folks. There is a potential downside though. And this is what I usually find. And, uh, you know, it's great for instructors. We never really give straight answers. We just pose these unanswerable <laughs> questions. We're so annoying. <laughs> exactly. But one of the things that happens in our play sessions when I played it in with my, with my classes is um, that those abstract cubes, you just start pushing them around as pawns. I mean, the weird thing about I don't know if you're intended to talk about this, but the weird thing about slaves and freedom is that they are literal pawns that you don't represent the enslaved. You represent the abolitionists and anti-slavery mm -hmm. activists who are trying to free the slaves right. and they're just pushing, pushing wood. Um, and so we were wondering, like, sometimes you might have a, uh, you might have to sacrifice an, an enslaved person. You might have to sacrifice one of your cubes to save more. 
how long has that cube been on the board? Is that one you've been working real, real hard to move up from the deep south? How invested are you in that cube? It's a lot harder to feel that sense of investment when it is just a neutral cube that you can't distinguish from any others. So some of the students, some of my students were wondering what it would have meant to kind of individualize those uh, cubes in some fashion. Oh, they'd be very, they'd be far less sacrificed. They'd be far less. I think yeah. you'd, play, you'd be worse at the game. <laughs> yeah. You, know. you almost have to have an abstract just to make it work as a game. <laughs> but, you know, it raises these really fascinating questions totally. about the designer's choices. And then those become questions that every future designer has to consider in some fashion. So that takes us to the second part, which is the aspirational quality, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you can't, have slaves in your game without their struggle to be free. My whole video in Puerto Rico was that it, not that it erased the people, the people are clearly there, but it erased their struggle. Mm -hmm. And th there is no understanding. And I, I will stand by this. And I, and the, I think current historiography backs me up here. There is no understanding slavery without uh, any, or any captivity. It doesn't even have to be like mm -hmm. colonization or anything. There's no understanding that without understanding their struggle to be free. There's always a rebellion in there somewhere. And there's always either large rebellions or micro rebellions, struggles, resistance, the whole thing. So then the slaves' pieces themselves don't have that struggle. It, they are represented by the abolitionist side. You are playing an abolitionist. Insofar as there are slaves represented, there are people that are on the railroads, Harry Tubman and you know, a couple other people. Um, I think. Well, I, the, the designer actually says that he kind of regrets that choice as a designer. Like I should have given the slaves themselves more agency. Yeah. Right. right. And I think you had that conversation. I think I saw that on your blog, right? Yeah. This is a game that's players are not asked to be enslaved people who are trying to flee. They are asked to be the anti-slavery workers and underground railroad conductors and whatnot who are doing that work. Which, you know, so that you've got a layer in between. There's player, there's the enslaved, and then there's your avatar in the game who is not a slave. And that is an interesting design choice. And it certainly has a consequence for the, for the message that the game puts out. The slaves here are literal pawns in the hands of others. And so that does cut against the historiography that you're talking about, which you're absolutely right, is axiomatic. Nobody can do any work on slavery or captivity without... Uh, having to that, assuming that as a fundamental thing, that this is an unfortunate state that nobody wanted to be in. And they pushed against it and against it and against it in all the ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and so that's, but it, we do have, the game makes a really interesting point in that uh, those anti-slavery activists were a really important part of that resistance. Without them, it you know, try to play freedom without any anti-slavery activists. You can't mm -hmm. get anyone north. You know, that's an overstatement of the historical reality, but it does right. kind of suggest that there is a, a role for these people um, that uh, is perhaps neglected. I've never seen abolitionists in any other board game. Yeah, I mean, in a way, this game is about abolitionists. Yeah. Like, you know, I hear people that talk about, well, this is a slavery game. It's not a slavery game. It's a liberation game. It's in the name, freedom. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's not called slavery, the underground railroad. It's called freedom. And I said that at the Dice Tower and I'm, I, I stick with it because I, I didn't realize until I, 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 the name was staring me in the face the entire time, but you know how like things disappear into the background until you kind of see him again. And it's like, oh my God, this game is called freedom. <laughs> and then yeah. it, it kind of opened up like, you know, this whole idea of like, oh, this game is about aspiration and liberation, all that kind of thing. So I don't know as much about the abolitionist side. Does the game teach you the abolitionists and the, 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 does it represent that side? Well, are you able to kind of learn good lessons, good history from that side of it? You certainly encounter the possibilities of it. Um, there are a lot of the event cards. So the, the uh, abolitionist avatars, I, I think there are six of them, if I remember correctly, two are African-American. So that's a ratio that definitely could have changed. Mm -hmm. um, it was certainly the case that African-Americans were critical players in the abolitionist movement. In fact, I don't think there would have been an abolitionist movement that uh, the, the radical movement that pops out in 1831 with William Lloyd Garrison. That would not have happened if there hadn't been African-Americans uh, speaking with him and other white abolitionists or people who are ready to become radicals. 
African-Americans radicalized those immediate abolitionists and they mm. played uh, important roles, even though oftentimes even the white abolitionists were trying to marginalize them. So, you know, it was not an easy story. And some of that conflict is presented in the game and that the avatars have different abilities, right? So at least all the activists aren't exactly the same. They have different specialties and stuff, but you don't get into intense conflict between them, which is probably fine for this. Yeah, right, yeah. I mean, I guess like, um, cause you don't want games to be perfect historical Sims. You, you can't, right? It, it, there's there's so much stuff and, and goes back to the very valid point about, you know, games have to, you know, simplify and reduce and everything. Um, I think that if you try to, if you try to make a Sim, you're not gonna make a fun game. Uh, and I think I liked your video where you did de you detail like some of the things that this that freedom has to like kind of not get quite right. Like, you know, um, the, uh, like the, the as an example, reaching Canada was the liberation point. And there were a lot of ways that slaves reached liberation, like they went down to Florida or they went to across the ocean or they joined the army. And there was a lot of different ways that they, that could have happened. But the, for the game perspective, it had to just, OK, one way. <laughs> Canada. Yeah. And in, in doing that, it kind of, there, there's a lot of historical mythology around the Underground Railroad. And um, so one of the things I do with students when we look at this game in class is we try to encounter some of that, some of that mythology. Um, and it, 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 one of the myths, for example, is that it was all sort of white Quakers in Southern Ohio who were doing the work. And the reality is that it was African-Americans, people like David Ruggles in New York or William Hayden in Boston. William Hayden uh, was a free African-American guy living in Boston who his home was known as a stop on the Underground Railroad. And so he became a target of slave catchers. Uh, so there's one famed incident where uh, he faces them down as they're uh, coming up onto his porch. And he says, I've rigged my porch with explosives. So you step one, you know, make one step further and we'll all find out whether I'm speaking truth or not. And they backed mm -hmm. off. So there's a lot of kind of, you know, historical mythology about the role of white people in this thing and going to Canada is part of that. So you know, the game is more complicated than that. The cards lend it a kind of specificity, um, but there is a sense in which it kind of upholds that basic mythology. Mm -hmm. you know, I think that, mm -hmm. like there's history as facts and then there's history as story. And like, I think that a game can get all sorts of facts fudged up, just like art. Game is art. Anything is art. You're going to fudge it up because you want to, craft some kind of message some kind of story and i think a game does well even if it messes a bunch of facts up if this basic story kind of jibes with the lived experience of people who are there at the time right i think a game goes astray thinking of some of the colonization games where it's telling a just a, a, a completely different story and it gins up like the most absurd facts to justify that story so like you know a the story that like, you know, the, the, the colonies, the, the, the slaves liked being colonized or, you know, like we were, they were liberated. It was a favor to them and all that kind of thing. And there's a, there's a definite strain of history and it was really, really prevalent back in the day. And even now there's still, you'll still see strains of it where like the story is that colonization was a good thing right. and like an unqualified good thing. It lifted people up and I, I totally get how people like, well, there were some good things, some bad things, weren't that? Yes, I want to have that discussion, but I think that there are different media, games, movies, whatever, that tell that unqualified good story. Yeah. And I absolutely want to, and I think that's different than saying the facts are a little fudged up. Sure. I, I, I see in games like in, in those games a kind of, there's a weird thing about presenting colonial history in these games. And that I, I think originally that notion was deemed a kind of safe or comfortable space for designers and players, right? Almost nostalgic in a way. Right. Like, oh. so it's, it's escapist fantasy. Exactly. It's like, it's like going to a resort. It's like <laughs> or, or like, like Sid Meier's Civilization, that whole series is like, just was built on this notion that yeah, expansion is good. It's all about national boundaries and national cultures and all this, all this kind of stuff. I mean, it's, it sort of falls apart as, as real history. Um, but that was kind of the safe space for a long, long time since um, gaming culture has broadened, since gaming audiences have, have broadened, since we've begun to connect 
some of the academic to the to the representation. Uh, I think that that's that's going to be changing. I know with uh, Struggle of Empires, when Eagle Griffin um, recently re-released it. Um, and Ralph Anderson, the guy who led that project, was very concerned about the representation of slavery in that game. So he sort of renames it as it becomes the Gold Coast trade. Well, that's a choice that people can, can argue about, but there, at least there is a consciousness and awareness there that in the time from the first to the next edition of Struggle of Empires, there had been a massive change in public right. attitudes toward these things and in gamers' attitudes. And, and to me, I'm tired of talking about colonization games. Let's talk about other things. <laughs> <laughs> there's so much history, people. It's so, it's so huge. Look what Assassin's Creed did. Speaking of that, it's like everything is there. Anyway, we don't have to get bogged down there. Um, okay, so we've talked about the slaves themselves. Uh, is there anything else that you want to say about the abolitionist side before we get on to? Yeah, but the, the one thing I think that's interesting in this game, this kind of a point of interpretation that that baffled me, which is was that there's no way to actually end slavery in the game. You can get slaves out of slavery, mm. but there's no mechanism for actually destroying the institution, which is a little bit odd. The game actually goes into the civil war. There's a, the third phase of the game is set in the civil war. And yet the key outcome of the civil war, which is the destruction of slavery, doesn't really have a, have a, have a place in the game. So um, look, it's easy to take pot shots and that's not what I'm, I'm here to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, the point is that like, like, because considering what came before, which was virtually zero, yeah. that is incredible, <laughs> right? So I don't mean to right, right. undermine it in any way. It's just, again, setting some of the markers um, for what, you know, people might want to think about as you go into the future. Exactly. This is, I, I, I hope that folks take this as not as criticism, because I think that is a very easy thing for folks to do. Like, oh, we're just criticizing, tearing down. This is, this is out of complete and utter love. This is out of anybody who wants to be in this space. And we absolutely welcome that as, you know, doctor of history and a complete amateur, but who loves history. I want to be in this space more. And I would love to like kind of just lay some track how people can kind of further explore. If you want to, you know, if you're going to enter back into this space, that's something to think about. Absolutely. You know, as a victory condition, it's like, boom, we're, we're good. You know, okay. So then the last part, and this is, so uh, some of this is a little bit of a rehash when we talked about in the, the previous podcast, some of it not. And I think we very much deepened the discussion. We didn't talk about these people at all last time. And this is, I think the part that we're more aware of now in the aftermath of Colin Kaepernick, in the aftermath of George Floyd, in the aftermath of all this other stuff that now we're more aware of than ever. And I'm going to put a flag for this for people who are listening to this. This is <laughs> there's a dirty word, right? We're going to get political. <laughs> it's like, oh my god, to keep board games out of my uh, keep politics out of my board games. If this is something that you don't want to talk about, if you don't want to apply board games to present day stuff, then you're probably good on you know the podcast for now. I hope that you've learned something. But we are going to enter that space. We're going to enter the space of just relevant stuff that's happening right now. And it's a it's unfortunate because we thought we did, in a way, like we didn't talk about the third thing, which is the slave patrols, the, the, the instrument of repression, right? Which, I, which is my third point. And when we talked about it in 2017, it wasn't in our consciousness that like, you know, it was, it was just a different time. You know, Hamilton was there, immigrants are good. And Obama is our president. And, you know, there's all sorts of like multiracial democracy is winning. And then, or, or 2017, um, Trump was president, but like we just came off of Obama, we didn't know. Right, we didn't know what we were in for, but now, no, it's all no more. Yeah, we know what. Um, uh, I got a quote here from a historian, Eric Fomer, who said that the history of America it can kind of breaks down to two different strains: the a yearning for multiracial democracy and a yearning for white supremacy, and they've never quite. Neither of them have won. They're always in tension. You know, even when one is in charge, the other is bubbling up and trying to make room. So the slave catchers in a real way represent w w white supremacy. Yeah, absolutely. Right? I mean, that's uh, 
whether they represent some, they could represent the slave patrol, right? Which was uh, a whole bunch of people throughout the, the white South who uh, were often charged by law with policing the countryside to make sure that uh, uh, enslaved people were commuting and getting together and plotting and planning and whatnot. And let's um, talk about like, just to break down a slave patrols, like, the interesting history there is that it's not like they, like th- there's no police back then. There's no professionalized police. There's no departments. If you look at every hist- every city in the country, the police departments were founded like the late 1800s, early 1900s. So at the time, the the po- the policing was really at the level of the town, and even at the level of just individual people, kind of with a sense of what order, what mm-hmm. should look like, taking it upon themselves, deputizing themselves, and having the um having the kind of the blessing of the state in order Absolutely. to carry out that violence. So yeah, it was a much like law enforcement was a much more diffused community project than, than it would be now that were then what would we would be used to. And yeah. And to, I mean, to call it law enforcement in the South, I think is almost a misnomer. It was about, it was about slave enforcement, right? Order and, enforcement. Yeah. It was about maintaining the, 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 the hierarchy uh, in, in that society. So, um, you know, there was, uh, yeah, we're talking about a stage of American history where the state, like state institutions are, are very weak and they're very small. Only like big cities like New York could even manage to try to put together like a constabulary or some kind of a, of a, a prototypical police force before the Civil War. It, it happened, but it was rare. Throughout the South, you didn't have that. Instead, what you had was an entire society dedicated to the premise of white supremacy, right? So, you know, only about 20% of Southern families had any uh, owned human property. Uh, Only about 5%, less than 5% of individuals in the South owned human property. How do you get everyone else in that society on board with protecting your form of property? You hire them. And of seceding from the union to do it in 1860. And one of the ways you get them to do it is white supremacy, right? That's how you get, you, you make them join the slave patrols. You make them want to join the slave patrols because the threat that is there is that if you do not control these people, if you do not help us maintain slavery, then you will lose whatever social status you have, whatever social position you have, you will be put into competition with these people. Um, and so, no matter how sort of socially low you were as a white person, you were always promised that you were higher than the highest black person, even right. a, a free African-American person in the antebellum South. And so you were a part of, you were usually part of a militia, you were usually armed, you know, it, it didn't take much <laughs> yeah. to get you drafted in. And it was in a way, it was like, you know, Dr. Dr. O saying, like it was a way to unite, unite rich and poor. Yeah, yeah, you know? absolutely. It's, it's how you, 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 you have these class cleavages, rich and poor, but you pull them together with race, right? You, you get people to, to think that that's the most important component of their identity as it was. Like we're not, you know, so, so working class, poor people, white people are not thinking about uh, how the slaveholders are, are, are dominating government and not helping them economically. Uh, you get them thinking about the threat is really coming from below. And that's what we need to worry about. And of course, that's something that persists after slavery, as you've suggested. In Reconstruction, in the Jim Crow South, mm-hmm. um, racial order was maintained um, partly through contract, right, through labor contracts. Um, but there was still wasn't a large, powerful state that could um, control the labor of African-Americans. That was, that was really done more at this level of sort of local social attitudes and behaviors. And people that were deputized by culture, by rich um, interest, by whatever state mechanism was there. I think that's what, when you look at the pieces, like I really wanna kind of stay with the game, right? When you look at those five pieces with the five shapes, and again, this was an d- intentional designer choice. Like they didn't want meeples with guns. They didn't want like, you know, <laughs> like if you look, if you turn the, the, um, the shit around, there's a guy on a horse. So mm-hmm. like they could have, they could have, put, you know, meeples on horses and whatever. But I think that the designer made a choice to say, okay, I want to abstract this because I, I, you know, I don't want to kind of enter that space, but it's right there. 
Right. It's yeah. right under the surface. And if you, if you want, if you just want to keep it as a game, it's, you know, it's a game, but if you want to just peek a little bit into the history, you would just open up this whole, again, it's like this America is, is, is always two impulses. It is the impulse to multiracial democracy and it is the impulse to white supremacy. And I think we've gotten a little bit sloppy with our discourse where it's like anyone who speaks, who criticizes the multiracial part will say, you're a white supremacist. You da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. And when we're talking about white supremacy, we're talking about something very, very specific. Exactly. You yeah. Know, we're very, like we're talking mm-hmm. and we saw it. We saw it. And again, if you if you're if you don't want to hear politics in your board games, you're good to shut this off. Like we that was what we saw on January 6, 2021. Yeah, I mean that's that's what that event was about. And that's unfortunately that's what a good chunk of that political party is about. It's built on it's the message is white is white supremacy. It whether it's explicit or implicit, it is a sense in which there are people in the in the country, and again, I'm not saying this is every single conservative. I'm not saying this is every single Trump voter or anything like that. Uh, believe me, <laughs> I'm I, I'm a doctor. I have to work with everybody, and I'm just focusing on the people that are like at the tip, the radical tip. And there are people who look at the White House, who look at power, who look at um, I think it was in Wilmington in like the late 1800s where there was an actual coup. Like you know, they had re- they had elected a biracial uh, um, a town like leadership, and there was a literal coup to replace them with people who adhere to white ad- uh, white identity politics. The Tulsa riot of nineteen in the nineteen twenties was, the, you know, Black Wall Street. Blacks are making, inventing things. They're building wealth. They're getting patents. They're do they're doing all these things, and then a white backlash. Yeah. You know, it, it's it, it, it's not. I'm. Not, I, I really have to be really careful to distinguish people who you know have their criticisms of multiracial democracy and everything from white supremacy. That's a different thing. And the white supremacists, they look at power and they say, "That's mine." Well, the interesting don't thing to, that's mine. I mean, those are cycles. Like the fancy academic word for that might be like a dialectic, right? You have the struggle for freedom and then it creates, it generates this, this sort of backlash. Oh, we don't want to give up our privileged caste position, our right. property in our whiteness, you know, our symbolic property. And so there's fight back and it's like, okay, so we, we, we do this through, this is most of our history consists exactly of that. Mm-hmm. And this is a game that reminds us of that. This is an early stage. It's not the earliest stage of that, but it's the critical one because it's the one where the, the strongest symbol of white supremacy slavery, you know, died at the, as a consequence of the civil war. So it, it, and the interesting thing I find about the, the slave catchers is again, it just marries so effectively with, with the, the message, right? Right. Because when you're in a co-op, yeah, you're, you're playing a co-op, you have to play an opponent, right? In pandemic, you're playing viruses in, Shadows over Camelot, you're playing moderate or whatever it is. So the system has to play you back in some way. That is your kind of constraint. And in this game, it's the perfect villain, right? It's the slave catchers. Who better to represent the limitations of of, of freedom? And the way that, so you mentioned, I'm so glad you mentioned the pandemic meeples, right? Or that pandemic disease cubes. The disease cubes are random. They just appear. Right. And they're there. And, you know, and you have to go to them and deal with them. And the, 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 the game overwhelms you by multiplying. Mm. Right. But it doesn't care about you. It's just doing disease things in freedom. There's only ever five slave catchers and they follow you. Yeah. And that, 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 that little difference of the way the AI is, you know, different and creating that resistance. Like you can't move unless you're in the very South, you can't move without triggering a slave catcher movement. And in a very subtle mechanism is the message way. That is how a slave felt whenever, and maybe they might've even been deputized by their master to go represent them in a trade or something to go pick this thing up or whatever. So like they have a writ that says, I can, I'm, I'm on behalf of my master, I'm gonna pick up this yeah. thing and didn't matter. The, the, the whole point of the slave patrol was to follow. Right. And, so, and keep the person in their place and sometimes even just, you know, do all sorts of violence to them. And like, just the fact that the, the slave pieces are so ever present, you can never forget they're there. Yeah, I, I I love this, and you know I hadn't put thoughts to this uh, uh, to this extent, but I love this point. It is like 
the precariousness of movement, right? The danger of moving. And so like moving itself is a kind of freedom, right? And there are trans historical sure. ways of thinking about this. Like there um, recently, uh, you know, like you think about the green book, which was in the early 20th century, it was the book for colored traveler, for colored travelers to, in quotations. Um, and it, it told you all the places you could go without having to worry, you know, this is a sundown town, these people are terrible, stay at this hotel in this place. And so free movement itself becomes a kind of uh, expression of liberty and freedom in some way. So here the constraint on that is pretty effective. Mm -hmm. And it's so easy because you know I, I'm very I'm very um, careful to avoid the term racism, um, you know. Like, and I think that that's what happens with these conversations. Right? Oh, you saying this thing is racist? That's racist, and everything. And I'm very careful to avoid that term because it has a very personal connotation. Like, you know, if you're racist, you must hate people, yeah. right? And yes, there's a lot of hatred involved. And I think that the you know the, the bleeding edge of the of the slave catcher slave patrol movement, you had you know like pure abject personal hatred. I think it's a be the better way to think of it is like, okay, these are people who believe that society is a certain way. They believe that there's an order to society and they, they look at that order and they think, okay, I must defend this. And if it, there's, if that order is threatened, then, you know, I, I have, I will not stop until it's threatened. So like, you know, imagine I, I heard this, um, you know, when the, when the, when the rioters came into the white house, it's like, they're looking at the white house. Like they look at their own house. And somebody else is sitting in their house on their couch, eating potato chips, watching your big screen TV. What would you do if you were like, if you, if it was you and there was somebody in your house, would you say, oh, okay, you can have my house. I'm going to go over to the next house. No, you would defend your house. So that's a different East. That's a different thing than hatred yeah. because, you oh, know, and, and it's actually, in a way, it's more powerful because in a way, they won't stop. Well, it's, it's, like it's not going to stop. That, that sense of order that you draw on is so normative in, in their minds. You know, that's, that's just the way it is. So like I grew up in Washington, D.C. and then did my work in, in the Bay Area of California. So pretty big, pretty diverse places. I'm in a smaller state now that has one of the smallest populations of color in the whole union. And um, I see that operative, like, like I hear that uh, 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 in people like in coffee shops and stuff, just a sense of they, they're they. taking it. And it's like, I, I never even, I didn't really understand that so many people just thought of it. And it's, it, it doesn't come out of animus or hostility. It just right. comes out of a sense, what they think of it as rightness. And of course, it's a fiction, right? It's a complete nonsense. The mindsense, the worldview, yeah. There's no more belongs to white people than to anyone else. It's just complete. But but they don't, of course, don't understand it as racism. And it's because its experience is normative, I take offense if you call them that. Right. So it it, it <laughs> you have to be really careful, right? <laughs> These things. I I don't want to accuse anybody of racism. I don't. Want, I think like the the watchers of this show by and large believe in the idea of a multiracial democracy. You know, anybody who watches this program is, is on some level, at least it believes in it or is open to it or whatever it is. And I don't want to accuse anybody who watches the show of anything else like that. I'm just, I guess I'm just trying to understand and help people understand because a lot of the reaction to that, what happened on January 6th was shock. Mm -hmm. Like, like it blew people's minds. How could this happen? Blah 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 blah. And to folks who have done the work to study the history, yeah. to folks who understand the you know the, the the strain of white supremacy, like and I've really tried to. It's not like I'm blessed with this. I've really done this, tried to do this work as much as I can. I wasn't surprised at all. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing you weren't that surprised either. Like you were probably surprised, but not shocked. I was appalled, but not surprised. And particularly after seeing what's been going down over the last four years. But um, so it, it, is, it is kind of extraordinary. And I think that it's important for Americans to understand that we are living in a, in a like we are so used to thinking that the, the or so many Americans are so used to kind of just latently thinking that the arc of history always goes upward in some fashion. We, yeah, we passed civil rights in 1965. We're good, we're good yeah. people. 
and it's and of course that's that's not the case and so it is an important corrective to that and i think people have to have the intellectual and moral courage to kind of acknowledge that that you know in a lot of ways we uh are, are at, a, at a real trough and uh it, it and relative to our past we are so it's not like in, by some absolute term but relative to where we've been we are down like we have not been at a place like this really since maybe the impeachment of Andrew Johnson and the civil war. Mm -hmm. um, so in it, terms it is, of like lack of national unity, you know, a lack of under like a complete divergence of what America is and just kind of not being on the same page. Fundamental questions about who's going to be part of democracy, right? When you voter suppress in a world that is as a media aware as ours is, and you get away with it, that is astounding. Like we have, uh, I mean, we have we have gone really far backwards on on a lot of these points, and it's very difficult. I think, particularly, I get this among my students who want to be hopeful about their past, who want to be invested in their country. But um, uh, if you're going to have open eyes about where we are now in relation to our history, it's it's very hard to feel uh, to feel good about this place. Right. Um, you know, we have to focus yeah. on, on, on what we can change, the kind of good, good trouble that you referenced before with John Lewis. It takes all types. I think I, what I want to specify with this review, with this discussion, is that A, there is a far tip that really does believe in white supremacy and that it has existed throughout our history. It, it, you know, it was there in 1776, it's there now, and it's right there in our board game. Yeah, like, absolutely. and it was it was hiding right in plain sight. <clears throat> we yeah. didn't talk about it in 2017, but it's right there, which is an unbelievable thing to meditate on. It's there, there and in thinking about freedom once again, I haven't seen anything that 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 does that work since then. You know, um, which is not to say that it that it does its work perfectly. Um, one thing that the game so it, it's very the slave catchers are the critical component that you're playing against. You're also playing against some cards and, you know, some money problems and stuff like that. But on the board, it is the slave right. catchers. What you don't really get is, um, is, is the practice of slavery on plantations themselves, right? That's not sort of represented in the game that they didn't, you know, particularly try. Right. But I do think it's important for, for folks to realize that, um, that slave catchers, that's obviously bad. But, but the reality is that slavery wasn't was enforced um, uh, in a very local, in very, very intimate ways. And it was done by people who um, came from all, they weren't all Tom Loker style slave catchers. That's a character from Uncle Tom's Cabin. Like in, 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 the, in the history of the anti-slavery movement, um, slave catchers are usually considered particularly villainous, you know, right. and mustache twirling and yeah, exactly. hanging out in the corner. And it's like, well, I'm going to follow them. Yep. They're, they're low people with low morals, all this kind of stuff. And, and that kind of did a work it, even in the antebellum era, that was the case. And it sort of did a, a kind of work. It insulated the families who were practicing slavery, right? It, ins it you didn't get to see inside the household where, you know, a child could get beaten for breaking a plate where, I mean, I won't go into the horrible catalog of things, sure. but um, there is a kind of intimacy to the oppression of slavery that's not really represented in this game. It's not saying that it should have, by the way, I'm just, we're going to think critically and comprehensively about what is represented and what's not. I do think that's an important um, right. thing in the future that people might want to consider. There's so much. And I think, I, you know, kind of coming to a summary point with this conversation, we've hit all the points and the controversies. I think the summary point is that, A, we do believe that games can be good conveyances for this stuff. You know, I think um, both um, Dr. Rail and I believe that games are cultural products like art, movies, music. And if done well, they can, it, they'll never truly encompass what the subject matter is, but at least they will help you bring you to that antechamber so that you can continue that journey of, of yourself. There's so much that freedom doesn't have, but that it points us to. Freedom isn't like a circle. Freedom's like an angle. And it's like, you know, it, it starts you and then it, 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 but it points you in the right direction to learn all the stuff that's not on the board game, but at least is pointing you in a direction that I feel, and I think you agree, that is very, very fruitful.
for learning and for understanding our history. I found I have found it to be that way, and my students have too. So uh, I en endorse this game wholeheartedly, and and I'm I'm really excited to see how this art advances forward as we continue to try to incorporate these important historical issues in board games. And you know, uh, <laughs> and I think the, the and talk, talk about the aspirational goal. The aspirational goal is a multiracial democracy. You know, the aspirational goal is not to dis displace anybody or anything. You know, like, I mean, I'm talking to a white man right here, <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, that we need to replace or anything like, I, I really believe in this stuff. And I think that, you know, I want to appeal to people on all the spec, the whole spectrum who believe in that. And like, I want to honor people's criticism. If you have a, if you're on the right, you criticize the left, you have the right, you, you criticize the right. I'm good on that stuff. I'm good to have those conversations. It's just, there is another side that. We, we, we probably should do a little bit more work to understand more so that we know what we're dealing with. Yeah. And I think when we're thinking about games and it's so, we sort of want to know the, the right answer, right? So it does this game depict it correctly or not. And in some ways that's unanswerable because yeah. everyone is going to have their own particular take on that, depending on their values and, and, and what they bring to the experience. For me, the valuable thing is, I mean, I think there are some, we need to set acceptable boundaries of what is in here and, and what's not. But the conversation itself is the rich part. It is the, it is the talking of what is at stake? What is in play? Um, what have we missed? Those are the useful conversations mm -hmm. that move this whole art forward in a productive and constructive way. Dr. Patrick Rail, that was some conversation. You are not going to get this board gaming content anywhere else. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> well, thanks for, you know, creating the platform for it. I think it's really important work and uh, I appreciate you for doing it. And I'm sure a lot of your viewers do as well. Uh, where can we catch up with you? Are you keeping up with your blog? Are you uh, uh, doing everything else that's public in the board gaming space? I am. I'm. I'm. Uh, I've got my blog going. I hope to be adding to it. Uh, these COVID months have been hard to get uh, sure. in some game writing, but I've been playing some uh, interesting games relating to the Civil War and slavery. There's a, a fascinating one called uh, "What Is This Called?" This Guilty Land by Tom mm -hmm. Russell, yes, uh, which is about slavery. And I've just broken that out, and that's a fascinating thing. So I hope to be writing about that and some other games to talk about the politics of slavery before too long. All right, that is Dr. Patrick Grell. This is Jason reminding you: if you can change your mind, you can change the world. So until next time, later, everybody. Thanks for joining us again for the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. Also, join us for games and discussion on our Discord channel. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash one stop. Or leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and we'll see you next week for another Top 5 list.